Amen. Well, before we get into our passage today, we have another announcement to make, and that is we're having some changes take place this next year within our youth ministry. I see there's some parents out here, um, and most parents are already aware, but Timothy, uh, who has been serving as youth pastor for the last year, if you're not aware, he's been part-time here, part-time at FCA, uh, and he's a soccer coach all over the place. So what's happening is Timothy is going to focus more on FCA, um, and he's going to be going off of staff here at Common Ground. Uh, He's going to continue to be involved. So a lot of times when the youth hear this, they go, oh, because everybody loves Timothy. Um, Timothy's going to still be involved. So, (laughs) oh, yes. Um, We're not sure exactly what spot. You know, um, I have opinions of where I'd like to see him. But um, that's up to him and and their family of where they're going to serve, what kids they're going to dig into most. Um, But things are going to change a little bit with how we're doing youth starting next year. Uh, It's exciting. Um, If you want more information, there's a a letter in the back. But what's neat about it is I think it's going to be better for our youth the way we're going to do it. I'm not going to give you the details. You have to read the letter. Um, Because it's going to give them an opportunity to have more adults digging into them, Uh, more honest conversations about life, more real relationships around the word. So it's it's a good adjustment. um, But you know, I know for some kids, they won't see Timothy as much, but you will still see him. So Let me pray. We'll get into the sermon. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your people. Um, As I just think about worshiping you and I think about the life of the church and and the life of growth, it's all through relationship with you, through your word and relationships with people. So, I I mean, I think of even Timothy and I thank you for Timothy and their family and they're willing to serve. I thank you of, of, of Dan Uh, Thank you that he's coming down from Reno to help lead worship and all those other servants that are in here that have stepped in, that have taken responsibilities. God, all of this helps lead us closer to you. It facilitates uh, relationships with you. And and God, all that we looked at just this morning, this next hour, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present with us, that our hearts would be filled with with love and joy for you, uh, that Holy Spirit, you would convict us, encourage us, give us what we need to be closer to you. It's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. First question, what are you really good at? Think about something that you are just really good at. Something that you would unashamedly say, what are you good at? This is what I'm really, really good at. Speed reading, (laughs) driving backwards. That's Mater if you have kids. Um, What are you really good at? And how'd you get good at it? Maybe you have something in mind there. Maybe, maybe shooting. You can hit the center of that target every time. Well, how'd you get good at that? Probably by shooting a lot. Here's another question. What in your life has brought you the greatest joy? I mean, think far back. Think decades back if you're that old. What in your life has brought you the greatest amount of joy? You have something in mind? Now here's something else. What in life has caused the greatest amount of sadness, uh, pain in your life? Again, you can look back decades if you're that old. What has caused the greatest amount of sadness and pain? Would I be wrong if I said relationships are probably the greatest source of both joy and pain? 
relationships are a gift from God that can bring great satisfaction in life. I mean, horrible, horrible situations can actually be tolerable or enjoyable when you're, when you're with people you love and those relationships are good. Or you can have everything else in life just slamming, just awesome. But when your relationships are sour, it just taints everything, doesn't it? So let's go back to my first question. Is there something you're really good at? Did anybody think, I'm really good at relationships? Maybe you've heard the phrase, how do you become an expert in something? They say it takes 10,000 hours of practice to be good at something. And so I read that and just for fun, I Googled it and I found this guy who, I don't know how he did it, in his 30s, not an athlete, decided he's going to be the best golfer in the world um, and he's going to commit to practice until he gets to 10,000 hours. And he had never golfed before. So he actually quit his job. And this is what he does every single day, six days a week. Um, Google it. It's kind of funny. So we'll see when he gets to 10,000 hours if he's an expert at it. But let me ask that question with relationships. Have you put the time and effort into relationships and getting good at that as you have getting good at something else? Whether it be for a profession, for work, maybe you're a carpenter or an electrician or a politician or whatever that is, have you put a lot of work into getting good at that? What about relationships? In my experience, here's what I've seen. Most of the time, people put good effort into learning something that can make them money or, or even a hobby, but relationships, we just do it. It's like, that's just part of life. You know, we, we were born in relationships. We couldn't decide our parents, <laughs> couldn't pick our siblings for sure. Uh, later, you get to pick your spouse, but a little while later, you wish you didn't. And then a little while later, you're okay with it. I mean, let's just be honest, right? These things happen, but, but we kind of just go with it rather than do we really focus on getting good at relationships. This is our topic for the next two weeks, how to have great relationships. Now, today we're going to be mostly in James. So you can go ahead and turn to James 1, but we're going to start with one verse in Proverbs. I'm just going to hop, pop on the screen so you don't have to turn there. But Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Leave that up if you would. Why did I start with that verse? When you think of wisdom... What do you think about? A lot of times we think of the, the, the wise guru on the hill, somebody who has a lot of knowledge. The Hebrew idea of wisdom is a little bit different. Let me, I'm going to read to you just a, a passage out of Exodus. This is weird. Exodus 35. But here God is giving instruction to build his tabernacle, the place where people would go to meet with God. And he says this in there. He says, see, the Lord has called by name Basilel the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. God chose this guy to do some work for him on his tabernacle. And he filled him with skill, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, to deal with gold and wood and things like that. The word skill, that's the word wisdom. It's the same root word. So now we hop to Proverbs where he uses that word. The idea of wisdom is that of a skill to live by, not just knowledge. Look at that verse, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's say the beginning of the Lord is the, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of skill. Skill. 
wisdom, a skill to live by. As you read scripture and you see the idea of wisdom, it is always talking about knowledge applied to life, skill. And it's broad. Sometimes, as with here in Exodus, it's narrowed in. This guy has wisdom or skill in craftsmanship. But here in Proverbs, it's a little bit broader. Wisdom to do life. And what is maybe the greatest skill we need in life to do life well? Relationships. Relationships. So that's why we're starting there. Now let's look at that. Pop that out. Good. It's still up there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord. Is it scared of judgment? Scared of hell? The idea of fear here is that of weight. So the best example that came to mind for me was when I was in high school, I was a wrestler. And we had several coaches through the years, but we had one coach that was a coach all the way through, uh, and his name was Dwayne Burkholder. He was not a teacher. He worked at the post office. But this guy, uh, I don't know how old he was. I thought he was a pretty old, but maybe he wasn't. He was probably in his 40s or 50s when he was coaching. But, but he, was, he was an expert wrestler. Uh, in the period when I was actually under his coaching, he won second in the world twice um, in his class. So 50s, but, but still. Um, and I Googled him and looked him up. When he was in college, he, he was a, a high-ranked wrestler. He was one of those that... Even me, when I got bigger and, I mean, 140 pounds, and he was like 112 pounds, I couldn't even touch the guy. He was like a grasshopper. If you ever hold a grasshopper in your hand, maybe you've done that, and it just pushes out, that was him. Uh, if you got him near his back, he was just pushing out. He was an expert wrestler. He, he was a weightlifter, too, and I remember he would go into the weight room right next to the wrestling room, and he would have to get like half the wrestling team to help him put on this special shirt. Um, that would help him work out. So it was so small. It was this weird thing. And we'd have like four of us hanging on the bottom. Anyway, this is our coach. He was awesome. When he walked in the room, you listened. When he told you to do something, you did it. When he told you to run, you ran. When he said gather up, you gathered up. When he was showing a skill, everybody listened because he was good. Now, we had another coach who was the football coach. And he kind of came in because they needed an assistant he didn't know anything about wrestling, really. I mean, he might have wrestled a little bit, but when he talked, it was kind of like, eh, whatever. <laughs> he doesn't really know what he's talking about. In fact, half the wrestlers could probably beat him. <laughs> but the, the idea there, Dwayne, this one coach, had weight, fear. We feared him in the way that this is talking about. When he spoke, we listened. We respected him. He had authority, and we recognized that authority. That's the picture here. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, recognizing he's the expert. He designed everything. Did you know he made up relationships? Like that was his idea. The whole marriage thing, he thought that up too. Parents and kids, that's his. He's the expert. He's the engineer. He's the designer. So a skill to live life begins with recognizing him first. It's a skill to live by. And God is the giver of that skill. This is in your handout. In order to gain the skills needed to experience great relationships, it must always begin with God. Who is your authority? And skill, if we're thinking about skill, that takes time. When I got married, I was 24. I was 24. Uh, Callie had Brendan, who was four. So when I got married, I was instantly a dad. 
So the way I went about that was before we got married, I read a bunch of books. I gained the knowledge I needed to be a dad, to be a husband, and then we got married and I did everything perfectly because I knew everything. <laughs> yeah, right? I got married and then life happened and I realized I need more skill. I need more understanding of how to do this. Where would I go? Back to those books? I mean, those books were good. But where do you go? It begins with God. Who is your authority? Now, flip over to James. James chapter 1. We're going to see that those who succeed in relationships are those who humbly seek out God's instruction and they put the effort to gain the skill. You know, just a little plug before we hop into James. Do you think the skill in relationships is worth having? And specifically, I'm going to hone in on marriage real quick. The skill of marriage, do you think that's a skill worth having? What better thing can we do for our kids than have great marriage? Nothing. The best thing, I, I mean, I love kids. In fact, I love kids more than I like you adults. Um, that's just a fact. But the best thing I can do for kids is give them parents growing in Christ. The best thing I can do for kids is help marriages thrive. That's one of the big reasons I do what I do, because I love kids so much. The best thing we can do for them is get marriages growing and thriving. Here's another thing. Grandparents, are you done? No. No, my parents were in town, and uh, they told me about a seminar they took on grandparenting. Like, I didn't even know they offered those things. The second most influential people in a kid's life is their grandparents. Grandparents can be a great example of marriage and of godliness, to their kids. So these relationships are key. Now let's go to James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Think about that a little bit, a minute. If any of you lacks wisdom, or let's say skill, if any of you lacks skill in relationships, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Anybody in here have uh, a marriage that's struggling? We're not going to have a show of hands. Anybody here looking good on the outside, but when you get home, it's falling apart? Any of you uh, delay getting home at night because it's just not someplace you want to be? Here's a real personal one. When's the last time you were really intimate with your spouse? And is that playing a role in your marriage? Any of you parents not know what to do with these kids? Show of hands? Okay. <laughs> yes, I have four kids. I haven't figured it all out yet. How do we do this? If we lack skill, this takes some humility. To be honest, let's look at relationships and go, they're not where they need to be. Maybe some of us are like, things are going really good. That, that's great. How do we get there? How, what's he say? James. By the way, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Ask God. Have you asked God for the skill to make your marriage thrive? Have you asked God for the skill to be a parent? That's one of my biggest prayers. As I look at being a parent, and I look at these kids, and I go, golly, I don't know how I don't mess this whole thing up. The only way, God, is if you intervene here, because I know me. So we're asking God for the skill. Callie and I pray this together. Give us the wisdom to be parents, 
What do these kids need? This one needs this, but this one doesn't need that. This one needs this. They need different things. We discipline this one this way. We discipline this one a different way. How do we gain that skill? We ask God, and I would say couples, ask God together. Ask God together for the skill. There is no better way. So we, I met with this marriage panel on Friday talking about what we're going to be going over next Sunday night. And somebody in there talked about, you know, when things aren't going well and the couple then prays together. There's no better way to get past some of those things than to pray together because you're, you're never no more vulnerable than you are when you're praying because God knows everything, doesn't he? So when we pray together and we seek God's wisdom together, that changes everything. But there's a catch. You don't just ask God for wisdom and get it. Looks like it. There's a catch. Look at verse 6, James 1, 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's the catch. God is the source of wisdom, not a source. If God is one of your sources, it's not going to work out for you. I'll just be totally honest with you. If God is one source, you're going to find better answers somewhere else. By better, I mean ones you like better. But when God is the source, you have no option but to do it His way. So here's one example, and I'll just tell you, this is one I've encountered over and over in marriage. When things aren't going well, you start threatening divorce. By the way, if this is you, you're not alone. This happens all the time. This is one of the worst things for a marriage because God's way is, I'm making this commitment for life. But then you get, get going in marriage and you go, yeah, maybe I want out. If you don't do what I want, I'm going to divorce you. Well, golly, that's double-minded, right? That's, I'm not sure I'm going to fully do it God's way. The double-minded man or woman takes maybe what God says into account, but then also maybe what others would say. Oprah, magazines, friends. Here's something Callie and I have seen quite a few times. The person that has a relationship thing going on, and who hasn't, and they go to seek counsel, but really they're trying to find the answer they want. And so they'll come to me. What should I do? Well, here's what the Bible says. Okay. <laughs> and then I see him across the room talking to somebody else. What should I do? Well, I think this, and here's what the Bible says. And then you hear, oh, yeah, they talked to me too. Oh, they talked to me too. They talked to me too. Oh, they finally talked to the person or found the source that told them what they wanted to hear, and now they're doing that. That's what they were going to do all along, just what they wanted to do. They just needed somebody to sound spiritual enough to go, oh, I have the support for it. My point here, God is the only source, the only source. As you see here in James, it talks about the double-minded. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. And what did they just ask for? Wisdom. You won't get the wisdom if God is one voice among many. The big idea I want us to be getting this morning as we look at this, if we want to do relationships God's way, here's my temptation. I'll be totally honest. My temptation is to try and take all the problems we have in relationships, marriage one, but parenting, and try and fix them all right here. But we would be here for like four days. Um, and I don't have the wisdom to do that anyway. <laughs> I don't have the knowledge. Rather, 
My goal this morning, and, and biblically, the goal from here, looking in Proverbs and James, is that you would adopt the attitude, I'm going to seek to do it God's way. The commitment, I'm going to do it God's way no matter what, and now I'm going to seek what God's will is in this or that or this. Because your situation is unique. I'll just be totally honest. Your marriage is not like mine. Your parenting relationship is not like mine. It's also not like the person next to you. Your upbringing is not like the person that, we are each so unique and every relationship is unique that if we try and cover everything we can't, but if we go here first, it begins with God. He will give you the answers. That's what he promises. If you ask him without doubting, he will give you the answers. The answers are in scripture. The question is, are you willing to do it his way or do you still really just want what you want? We're gonna look at that in a little bit. But I came upon a story that I thought might touch some of us, might be relevant. Picture this with me. There's a man driving home from work. His marriage has been difficult lately. Seems like as soon as he walks in the door, there's an icy chill in the air. His wife just wants to fight. She makes him feel like a failure. He can never be secure because she's constantly threatening divorce. And to top it off, she has refused to sleep with him now for over three months. He has needs. He has rights. Doesn't he deserve certain things? He works hard. So he turns to the internet. He disengages relationally. She won't show him love or respect, so in turn, he will withhold love and affection. He's had enough. He begins to think of options to satisfy his desires. He's considering how he's going to fulfill them, but then he gets a flat tire. He pulls over. It's just after dark. Soon an older man pulls over to help. The man is kind, compassionate, and for some reason, this husband trusts him and just spills everything. The older man asks, what would God have you do right now? Uncomfortably, the man admits he does not know. Part of him doesn't care. The older man pulls out a worn Bible and begins to flip. He goes to Proverbs 5, 15 to 21. And in those verses, it talks about a man finding his fulfillment in his wife alone. Take joy in the wife of your youth. The only appropriate source of sexual fulfillment is your wife. He goes on to look at those verses and see that sexual sin is first a sin against God, not your spouse. He shares the gospel with this man. Who knew it? They just haven't gone to church for a while. He said, this God who died for you, who came, he has forgiven you for all your sin. You have been faithless in your life, but he was faithful. What did you do to earn his forgiveness? Now, why are you putting expectations on somebody else? Then he turns to Ephesians 5, 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he says, how did Jesus love us? In Romans, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act cleaned up. He initiated the love. The man says, the husband says to this man, then what do I do? The man answers, he says, first, enjoy the forgiveness you get from God that is not based on anything you do. And then go home and love your wife. 
but pull over before you get there. Go to a store and get her some flowers. Write a card telling her all the things you appreciate about her. He says, I don't feel like it. He says, yeah, you probably won't. But do it anyway. The feelings might come later. Marriage takes work. This old man says, then I know you've worked all day, but do the dishes. Draw her a bath and let her have an hour alone. She's a treasure. Treat her like it. Then we could look at the, the mind of the wife. She feels her actions are justified. After all, he went and spent $1,000 without talking to her first. And she has worked so hard at cutting costs around the house just to make the budget. He doesn't ask her about her day or listen to her interests. He cares more about his upcoming hunt or his other hobbies. He never touches her lovingly without wanting it to go farther. She feels used. So she uses what power she has to manipulate. If she was open to God's wisdom, she would hear in 1 Peter how to treat a husband who's not doing it right. Or go to 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 5, 3 to 5, where it talks about intimacy within a marriage. The wisdom, the skill we seek is found in God's word. The power to live it out is found in the Holy Spirit. And the motivation is Jesus Christ himself. As I saw that story and read through that, I thought some of us are probably going to get a little bit pricked because that's really close to home. I've talked to enough people to know many of us can relate to these situations. So what do we do? We decide to do it God's way. Step one to great relationships is that you commit to doing relationships God's way no matter what. So now if we're all agreed that we're going to do that, we're going to do it God's way, I'm going to give you one piece of wisdom that can change your life. Go ahead, and I do want you to turn there. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. What we're going to look at here is, for me, the number one lesson God has taught me to make relationships work. And I'm not perfect at it. Far from it. But if you want relationships to work, and you've decided to do it God's way, here's a huge tool. Galatians 2, 20. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Galatians 2, 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does it mean to be crucified? It means to be killed. This is a deep theological truth about you as a Jesus follower. And here it is, you're dead. That when you were united with Jesus, you were united into his death. You died. Stay there at Galatians 2.20, but I'm going to read a few verses, and I'm not going to expound on them because we just don't have time. But Romans, in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains this. And again, listen to this because this will change your life. Romans 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, imagine with me real quick. We're all dead. So you're sitting there, but now you're dead. Just think about it, you're dead. Now, get, we're acting now. Get in the scene, you're dead. What are you feeling? What are you wanting right now? You're dead, remember? What are you wanting? What rights do you have right now? Again, you're dead. What are your rights? None, right? You have no wants. You have no desires. You have no needs. You have no rights. You're dead. You want to make relationships work? Do them God's way and recognize you're dead. You're dead to your flesh. You're alive to God in the spirit. And as he says, that's why I wanted you to stay in Galatians 2.20, you're dead, but now you continue to live. It's the idea of a living sacrifice. And he says in these verses, now that I'm dead, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning the life I'm continuing to live, going home, doing relationships with my wife, my kids, going to work, doing relationships there, all that I'm still doing. But now it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here's the tool. When you start feeling your wants arise, when you start feeling that conflict, that desire to not go home, just say this, it's not about me. Based on these verses, this is the greatest tool in my own life. It's not about me. It's not about me. When the kids want something again, it's not about me. When I got to get up early for whatever it is again, it's not about me. When we have to spend all this money on whatever it is, but we have to do it, it's not about me. It's not about me. We do life God's way. We commit to it. Then we recognize it's not about me. This will change your relationships. Next week, we're going to talk about why we fight. And we're going to get really practical. Why do we fight? Marriages, parents and kids, friendships, other relationships. Why do we fight? But I wanted to leave you with this one application. If, if you've been sitting here and this hits you, if the Holy Spirit is talking to you right now, do this. On your way home or after lunch or at some point, you initiate the conversation with your spouse or with whoever it is that you need to initiate that conversation with. And here's how you start it. Just go, I'm sorry. Start by owning your side of whatever it is. I'm sorry. And then let God lead your conversation together. And if you're the other spouse, 
and your spouse says, I'm sorry, guess what? That's the code that it's time to enter into this conversation. <laughs> that we haven't been doing it God's way, but we want to. I'm sorry. And then we go back to the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Then you seek the help. You go to Scripture. Maybe you know the Scripture, maybe you don't, but guess what? There's help. Come back next Sunday. We're going to talk about it. Come back next Sunday night. There will be a whole panel here to help you. There's resources in the back to help you. You can talk to somebody here. You can email me. We can get together. There is help available for you as long as you commit to do it God's way. And he's the number one voice. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your way is the best way. Thank you that we can trust that you know what's best. And so when we pray, we ask for wisdom, you will give it if we're not double-minded. Holy Spirit, I pray that everybody in this room would believe that you have the best in mind for us, that you know the right way to go. And Holy Spirit, I also ask now for the, the boldness and the humility to enter into the conversations we need to enter into that we will have the humility to apologize. And then I also ask for the grace for the others that are doing the apologizing. <laughs> I ask that we would have grace and mercy for others because we're not perfect yet either. And that you, by this new life you've given us, you would live in and through us, that our marriages would thrive, that our parent-kid relationships would thrive, that grandparents, grandkids' relationships would thrive, in-laws' relationships would thrive, friendships, work relationships, that all these would thrive because we do them your way. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.